All right. If you will take your Bibles, please, and open them to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6. Beginning again at the first verse, focusing our attention again at verses 4 through 6. I don't need to preach a wedding. I did that yesterday. And uh, join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify for themselves again the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day, that you would teach us to obey your word, that you would teach us to hear and to understand the truth that you give us. I pray, God, that as we approach this passage, that we would see the truth of it and that it would transform us. God, help us receive comfort, but challenge us where we need to be corrected. Help us to see and to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been in this passage for a while, and we're focusing our attention on verses 4, 5, and 6. And we come this morning to the centerpiece around which the whole discussion pivots. How can a man be said to be a partaker of the Holy Spirit and still be apostate? Remember that Jesus said very plainly that he would lose nothing that was entrusted to him. That no one who was given to him by the Father would ever fall away. That he would make sure to present everything that he was given safely on the last day. And this is our promise from him. This is the core of it. And yet the writer of Hebrews indicates that there are those who somehow partake of the Holy Spirit and yet still have the potential to fall away. And if they do fall away, they can never be restored to any semblance of faith. This is the question that has to be settled, or else the whole passage is is canted off-center. The argument is not constructed in a linear fashion the way that we would think about it. It's built around this center point. And the center position is given for a reason of offering a hub more than than simply a point. Every other piece that's mentioned grows out of this idea of being a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Um, Everything that's given to us as we look at this passage when it talks about enlightenment and um, tasting the heavenly gift, tasted the good word of God, tasting the powers of the age to come, none of those things can happen if somebody is not enabled to taste them by the power of the Spirit. It is impossible for anybody to even have a brush with truth apart from the intervention of God and apart from His Spirit. 
So the two preceding and the two following show that this idea, the involvement with the Spirit, the partaking of the Holy Spirit, is really the root and the animating principle of the whole discussion. So we're going to unpack this just a little bit this morning. We're going to consider this as a starting point, and then we're going to consider how it is that some might partake of the Spirit in a fashion that does not necessarily communicate saving grace, although on the outside it might look like it has. Then we'll consider how to guard against this. So the first thing we need to recognize very clearly is that the Holy Spirit is the source of all spiritual change. There is nothing in the world that you can do which is spiritually valuable, which can be done apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Whether you are saved or not, if you are having any spiritual truth, any spiritual life, any spiritual anything, its ultimate source and power is the Holy Spirit. Because nobody ever seeks God on their own. Look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 Starting at verse 9, Paul writes this. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, with their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is the only one who can change that. God is the only one that can call dead flesh to life, that can make somebody who hates him by their very nature, which incidentally, according to Scripture, is all of us. God is the only one who can make somebody who hates him love him. It's his work. It's his power. It's his determination. It's his gift to us. There is nobody who seeks God in any way. And since God himself is the source of all truth, if you're not seeking him, you're not finding truth. Okay? Jesus told us in John 14, 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Right? So no matter what somebody's doing, no matter what somebody's thinking, no matter what sort of truth they're finding in the world, there may be things that touch things that are true, but they are not finding spiritual truth apart from Christ. They are not finding spiritual truth apart from God. And where God permits some sort of light of truth to come into somebody's life, whether it's saving or not, even that little bit of life that makes life better 
is a gift from God. Okay? It's His mercy. It's His grace. It's His, His, it's His to give to us. And there are lots of places. Please don't mishear me. There are lots of places where, where false religions touch truth. Right? There, there are lots of places where false religions teach things which honestly could be scriptural. They, they, they have a little bit of truth in them. All the best lies have at their heart a kernel of truth. And all the best lies are seasoned with just enough truth to make them convincing and compelling. So when I say that every other religion doesn't have the truth, I mean that they do not know what they possess. They don't know how to find God at the heart of it. And what truth they have, the little bits and pieces that they possess, even those things are a gift from God, which generally, when followed, make life better for those who do it. So there is this divine mercy wherein God grants Something to people which allows them to have some experience which is going to make their life better, which is going to draw them a little bit into a, into a, a more blessed state here. But it does not necessarily communicate saving grace. Okay? Now, it becomes very confusing for Christians when that work goes on inside the context of the Christian faith. Because there are some people who draw close to the truth that is offered in the Scripture with the right background of this is the Bible, this is the Word of God, and here we are, and yet there is no saving grace communicated. Their hearts are still hard against God, but they draw close enough to the truth that their lives might feel a little better. They draw close enough to the truth that their lives might feel a little more comfortable, that there's some good work going on inside of them, and even that good work is the work of the Holy Spirit, but it may not necessarily be communicating saving grace. Okay, This is what the writer of Hebrews is pressing, this idea that there are those who have some taste of the Holy Spirit, have taken something from Him, because the Holy Spirit's work can be divided into that which is actually Him and that which is merely the working of His presence. Okay? That which is Him involves relationship with Him. It involves Him indwelling the believer. But since He is everywhere doing what He does, there is some times where His working merely is the work that goes on. And it doesn't necessarily mean that there has been saving grace given. The Spirit can therefore be experienced without being known. Okay? People can have this taste of the Spirit. They can, and they can feel like, oh, I, I have the, this word from God. I have this Holy Spirit power, whatever it might be. And it's not the truth of the Spirit if the Spirit is not dwelling inside of them. Okay, remember what Jesus said. He said he was going to give the Spirit. He was going to pour out his Spirit over his people. And then in Romans, Paul tells us that apart from the Spirit of God, if you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you do not belong to Christ. Okay? So there's no such thing as a Christian who is not filled with, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a Christian who is void of the Spirit. It doesn't happen. But there are a lot of people who are in communication with those who have the Spirit. They're, they're rubbing up against the power of the Spirit in their lives. And they feel like this is the Spirit's power. But they don't know Him. They've not been given faith. They haven't surrendered to the Spirit of God. These people may walk in, in, in some semblance of truth, 
but they are not following what is the truth of God's word with a heart that has been made new. Okay? The world cannot and will not receive the Spirit of God until something changes in them. What did Jesus tell us in John chapter 14? Verse 17, he says this, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay? So those who belong to him have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them. He leads us into truth. He, excuse me, he leads us into a right understanding. He leads us into the, the awareness of who God is, a, a correct interpretation and understanding of his word. He guides us in all that we do. This is the gift of the Spirit in us. He is our comfort. He is our strength. He is our supporter. He is everything that we need. He is the presence of Christ in each of us. This is why Jesus told his disciples, it's better if I go away. Because if I go away, I'm going to send the Helper to you. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. But if I don't go away, then I'm not going to send him. Right? So it's better for you that I go. Just think this through. At that point, 12 people had lived their life with Jesus for three years. They'd walked with him everywhere. They had absolute access to him. They could ask him questions and get answers. They were there for his teaching. They witnessed the miracles. They saw the power. He shared his power with them. Right? But when Jesus went away, he sent his spirit to the church. And when he did that, the same experience that those 12 had was communicated to everyone who is made new by the indwelling of the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit does what? He calls to mind everything Jesus told us. He leads us into all truth. He's our comforter. He's the power of God in our lives. He seals us against the day of redemption. He calls us to life. He imparts faith to us with that call. It is the Holy Spirit who makes us the people of God. That is the distinction that is there. And it is a powerful enough experience that those who are outside of it but nearby it might get wet. Right? You go up and you hug somebody that just got out of the pool, you're probably going to be a little damp. Amen? So when when non-believers, when people who have not been converted, not been called to life, hang out around Christians, they might become confused about whether or not they belong because they may live in a way that's consistent because it makes sense, it's logical, it's moral. They may think, okay, I've, I've got these things going on. But in truth, their hearts have never been changed. Okay? Anybody who possesses any portion of anything that the writer of Hebrews has been going, that we've been talking about and are going to continue to talk about, that is a gift by God through the Spirit, whether it is communicating this saving faith or not. It is something that you cannot have apart from His Spirit. God was pleased to give it to him, and it is a mercy. Okay? It's a grace. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. But there are those who do not belong to Christ and have no indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, and yet may partake of his gifts or the operations of the Spirit, even to the activity of great apparent spiritual power, for reasons that are best known to God, and he has no obligation to explain to us. Okay? Remember that he's God and we're not. And sometimes that just means 
He's not going to tell us. Okay? But just consider this. Look at Matthew chapter 7. I just want you to think this through with me because this is really a stunning thing that Jesus says here. Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? And I will declare to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. Right? What's he saying? He's saying, you know what? There, there is a portion of people who are going to come to Jesus and legitimately say, look at all the miracles that I was able to perform by your Spirit. And Jesus is going to say to them, it's all well and good, but I never knew you. Depart from me. You worker of lawlessness. Now, I'm going to be completely frank with you. That's really confusing. (laughs) Amen? It's very confusing that somebody could exhibit spiritual power and not actually be alive. And what it comes down to is that God is pleased to sometimes allow people to do things which can only be explained by His Spirit's working through them but he is not necessarily dwelling in them. We have Old Testament examples of this as well. Do you remember some guy named, um, oh, Balaam, that was it, right? The prophet of the Lord. And he knew just enough about God to know that when God said, don't do it, he shouldn't, but he went anyway. And, and he went and God gave him specific words to speak. And Balaam didn't like speaking those words, but he spoke them because he knew just enough about God to know that he had to. But somewhere in the middle between the shouldn't go and decided to go, God sent an angel to kill him. Now, that's how the scripture phrases it. We know that if God had really intended to kill him, Balaam would be dead and the story would have been much shorter. But God did at least send an angel to get his attention. And God allowed the donkey of Balaam to see the angel and to avoid the angel and then to finally open his mouth and speak to Balaam. And then God gave Balaam very specific instructions about what he was to say. And Balaam spoke the words that God gave him. And those words, part of them at least, are messianic promises about who Jesus is. Right? So here's this unbeliever who's just been chastised by the Lord for dabbling things he ought not to dabble in, who has been given the right to speak powerful prophetic utterances that concern the coming of Christ. Kind of sounds like what the writer of Hebrews is expressing. That there are those who have some partaking of the Holy Spirit, some small portion which they are permitted to have, But it doesn't necessarily mean that they are actually the people of God. Because Balaam's story doesn't end with his utterance. It's not like he had repented and then now he's God's man forever. Because the New Testament goes on to reveal to us that Balaam gave to the king of Moab the secret for how Moab was going to destroy Israel. What was it? Make your girls real pretty and send them in. And they'll take your pretty girls as wives. 
And those girls that they take as wives will bring their gods with them. And then they'll worship those false gods. And that is exactly what happened. This is why Israel was told that they were not to marry into the other nations of the earth. It had nothing to do with Jews or a better race than anybody else or anything to do with interracial marriage in that sense. It had everything to do with interfaith marriage. It had everything to do with who you worship, not with who you are. Okay? Because remember, there was a Moabitess in the line of Jesus. What was her name? Ruth. Right? And she was the grandmother of David. So it had nothing to do with genetics. It had everything to do with spirit. It had everything to do with the reality of who somebody worships and the reality of who somebody knows. And I bring all of that up just to say this. It is not a strange concept, if we think about it, to say that God will sometimes use an unbeliever to perform a work and leave it at that. Okay? So we tend to look at things and say, well, they did this great work of power, therefore they must belong to God. That is an absolutely wrong thing to think. That is an... Pardon? There are lots of heresies beyond that way. That's absolutely true. So these people who are being used of God in this way, or who are tasting the Spirit or partaking of it in some sense, they are also gaining a personal interest in what's going on. It's becoming relevant and and important to them. It's becoming something that actually becomes motivating. It becomes precious, right? To go back to Balaam, I would hazard the guess that Balaam enjoyed his public presence as the prophet of God. He liked being seen in that way, right? He liked being perceived as somebody that God was in direct communication with, he enjoyed that power. This is part of why the writer of Hebrews says that those who have partaken of the Holy Spirit, if they fall away, if they get tired of that and they go, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore and I'm done, that it's impossible to restore them to faith. They cannot, their lives are actually so warped by this that they will never listen to the gospel. They will never hear it truthfully. When, when God allows somebody to, to fall away in that sense, it's first of all confessing they were never truly his. But second of all, it's also confessing that he's not doing any work in them at all, period. I'm done with them. Though, those people, this is a terrible danger. And it's a, it's a terrible danger. This idea of apostasy is what these, these, um, these verses are about. It's this falling away. And I want to remind you that Jesus always tells the truth, okay? And Jesus said, I will never lose any that are mine. I will never lose anybody that's been entrusted to me. And in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he said, I have brought everybody that you gave me. I kept them all safe, except for the son of perdition, who we knew was going to be gone before we started because the scripture had to be fulfilled, right? So what's he telling us about Judas? He was never his to begin with, right? He walked with them. He talked with them. He ate bread with them. He made sure to be the keeper of the money because he took from them. (laughs) He he was a thief, according to John, and, and helped himself to the money bags. But he was never Christ's follower. He never belonged to Christ. And Christ was not deceived about that. Okay? 
Judas followed because it was convenient for Judas to follow. It accomplished something he wanted to accomplish. It gave him something he wanted. But in the end, when Judas was, he'd reached the crisis of his life, and he did the act that we all remember. How did he respond when, when he was sorrowful for it? He went out and killed himself, right? Was his act any worse than Peter's? Inside the inner court of the high priest, and, and, the, and the woman says, weren't you with him? I never knew him! And he defeated three times, and the last time with a curse. The Bible graciously hides from us what that curse was, but imagine the worst thing you could possibly say about Jesus and about how blasphemous you could make that to make the point that you don't belong to him. That's exactly what Peter did. Was that action better than Judas's? No, it was the exact same sin. So why do we still know that Peter was restored and went on? Because Peter repented. And Peter repented because God had made his heart alive. Right? The working of God had already done its, its, its work. And so where Judas had turned away and shown that he was indeed apostate, he got so close to Christ, and in the end said, no, I'm not having anything to do with you, it just proved that he never belonged to Christ in the first place. But Peter vindicated the fact that he did belong to Christ by the act of repentance, by turning away from his sin and asking for mercy. So in the end, when, when a person becomes apostate and they, and they turn away and they say, you know what, I, I have nothing to do with this any longer, what we can expect to see is that they will never come back no matter how much pleading you give them. Now that's not to say if somebody leaves the church because they get mad at the preacher that they may never come back. Okay, That happens all the time. But if somebody abandons Christ and, and says, you know what, I'm done. I'm not having anything to do with this Jesus. I hate it. I want nothing to do with it. I'm out. That's a really good indication that God has just completely abandoned them and let them be and that they were never his to begin with. But there's a danger here that we need to be aware of because there are those who are deceiving themselves about the reality of their conversion. There are those who are deceiving themselves about who they belong to. And it's these that the writer of Hebrews is targeting and saying, pay attention to the danger that you're in. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Because if this describes you, and you go so far as to be cast off and abandon the faith, you cannot come back. Okay? So guard your heart. Pay attention. Focus on who Christ is so that everything that you do honors him. Now, at this point, you might like some clear direction on how to discern what is real and what isn't where faith is concerned. Because if I'm telling you that the Spirit might be pleased to use somebody in powerful ways and they not belong to him, maybe we want to look at what the Scripture tells us about how we can know that we actually do. So let's think about this, because this whole idea of apostasy is so unsettling that, that people will go one of two ways with it. They will either just say, no, 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 nobody can ever fall away in any way whatsoever, regardless, which is true if you belong to him, but there's a whole lot of things that have to be real underneath that. Or they go the other way and say, well, you can fall away and come back and fall away and come back and fall away and come back and fall away and come back. And at that point, you're already throwing away what the scripture says directly after it. The scripture says, if there's any way possible for somebody to fall away, know this, they can never come back. 
The end. So where we want to really focus our heart here is in the middle. We want to think about, okay, if, if God is giving me this warning, he's giving me this warning for a reason, and therefore the warning should have some clarity to it so that I might gain from it. So I want to think with you about how we can discern truth from lie. And the very first thing is by its fruit. Matthew 7, again, if you would please, backing up a little bit from where we read before. Matthew 7, starting at verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes from figs or thorn bushes or from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Okay? What's the fruit he's talking about? Well, he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit. He's talking about love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. He's talking about the fact that the fruit of the Spirit becomes evident in the life of a person who actually belongs to God. Because the Spirit will always have His way in a believer. It may take a lifetime for these things to manifest themselves to their fullness. But there will be an evidenced progression in how you look like Christ as you grow and grow up. Okay? Holiness is not optional for the believer. There will be nobody who is genuinely saved, who makes it into heaven, whose life shows nothing of Christ unless they got saved a millisecond before they died. Which is true and it's possible it could happen. Right? Thief on the cross is a great example of a deathbed conversion. We know it happens. But somebody who got saved, air quotes given, Somebody who got saved and then spends their entire life doing everything they can to get as far away from God as possible because they got saved and they got their hell insurance and they're happy needs to know that God is not in the insurance business. He does not sell hell insurance. He saves those that he calls. And when he saves those that he calls, he also undertakes to convert their lives to reflect the reality of their inward justification. The scripture is very clear that those who are justified will also be sanctified. Okay? The scripture is absolutely clear that your life will begin to take on the character of Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29 tells us this is why everything that happens in your life actually happens. The good, the bad, the painful, the pleasant, the indifferent, everything is there ordained and ordered by a sovereign God to fashion in you the character of Christ so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now that's very widely paraphrased, but I promise you that's exactly what it's teaching. Go check it out. Don't take my word for it. We just don't have time to read it this morning. (laughs) Romans 8, 28 and 29 is the verses, and it tells us that God is using everything in our lives to fashion the character of Christ in us. He is not going to miss that mark. I promise. He promises. Your life 
if you belong to him, will grow in grace and you will look more and more like Jesus the longer you live on this rock. Until finally he takes you off this rock and brings you into his presence where he finishes the work in an act that the scripture calls glorification. And it is that final act whereby God completes the work and makes you sinless for all of eternity. So the fruit that we are looking for is the fruit of the Spirit being manifested in our lives so that we begin to take on the character of Christ. Now, you're going to fail some, you're going to win some, you're going to go back and forth, but if you look at the course of a lifetime, you should see a progression of godliness being built up in the life of a believer. That is a good indication that somebody actually belongs to him. Now, we read where we stopped here in Matthew 7. We already read verses 20 and following. And I want to draw your attention back to that passage to give us something else to think about. Jesus tells these people who showed their works and say, look at all the good things I did for you. What did he say? I don't care about your works. I never knew you. Right? This is because salvation is not works-based. Salvation has nothing to do with the things that you do, and it has everything to do with the things that God is doing in you. He saves you. He makes you His own. And it's about a relationship that we have with Christ. It's about a relationship that Christ has with us. Paul Washer uses the example of the President of the United States, and he says, I know the President. I know him by sight. I know his name. So I should be able to walk up to the White House and go, look, it's the president. I know him, and they should let me in. Not going to happen. But if the president knows me, and I say, look, it's the president, and the president says, hey, it's Paul. Guess what? I'm getting in. Right? It doesn't matter whether you know God or think you do. It matters whether Jesus knows you as his. Amen. Right? It matters whether you belong to him, whether he has put his name on you and calls you his own. That is what matters. That's the truth of all of this. That the relationship that we have with Christ defines us. This is why we start to take on his character. Because we hang out with him. Right? You become like those who you hang around. This is why it's really important to choose your friends carefully. You shouldn't ought to have a whole lot of friends who don't want to do anything but hang out at the bar and make you do dumb things. If that's the people that you're hanging out with, stop. Find new friends. Find friends that are going to encourage you to walk in the truth of Scripture. Find friends that are going to encourage you to study the Word of God who are going to want to talk to you about spiritual things who are willing to be courageous enough to call you on your junk when you're telling them lies. Step into your business and say, you know what, that's not how Christians behave. Cut it out. We need people in our lives who will speak truth to us. We need people in our lives who will come alongside us and say, this is not who we are, and we're not going to put up with it. That's what the body is for. That's why God calls us to participate in the body of Christ. That's why God calls us to be a member of a local body of Christ. I'm grateful for everybody that watches us on the internet, but I want to tell each of you, you need to be in a church. 
You need people in your life that are going to speak truth into you. And I can't do that from here unless you're here physically. (laughs) And unless we're living life side by side. Everything that we do is designed to fashion in us the character of Christ. It's designed to make us look more like Him. And it's designed to help us know who He is. Now, there's another way that you can know that you belong to Him. Let me put it to you this way. I don't whoop other people's kids. Okay? But I'm perfectly willing and able to whoop my own. Amen? God is the exact same way. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews makes the point that when we endure the chastening that comes by God, it proves to us that we belong to Him. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 7. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there that a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which you have all become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we've had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 6 says, The Lord... Whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Right? So, you're looking at your life and you're going, you know, every single time I stepped out of bounds and did something unpleasant, bad things happened in my heart, in my mind, in my life. I was ruined by my sin. That's a really good sign. Okay? If you can, as a follower of Christ, step out into rebellion and do all sorts of crazy, stupid things and all sorts of sinful things and just sail on through and get away with it and nobody ever says anything and no bad things ever happen and you don't feel any guilt about it and and your life is just good, you need to be very afraid. You need to be very, very afraid for the condition of your soul. Because God says, if you're mine, I'm going to correct you. If you're mine, I'm going to chasten you. If you're mine, I'm going to make sure that you're growing up straight and true and strong. Because my sons look like me. My daughters look like me. My children look like me. This is what God says to us. He tells us, He promises us, that He is the one who is undertaking the work of our sanctification. And that He will never fail in that task. So this means that we are, being in, we are being chastened, and it also tells us that we ought to be comforted by the fact that we actually endure. Now this is kind of a, a strange way to think about Hebrews 6, when we say those who fall away can never be restored, but those who don't fall away, what's that mean? They're His, right? So if you endure to the end, okay, you may struggle, you may, you may 
think about giving up. You may think about walking away. But if you endure to the end, that's a really good confirmation that you belong to Him. Hebrews 3, verse 14 says, We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. As we are being fashioned into the likeness of Christ, we should always be checking our lives. Okay? We should be seeing, is the character of Christ being developed in us? Am I putting on the character of Jesus? Does my life look more like His? Look at 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. I can't talk suddenly. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 2, Peter writes this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and our Jesus our Lord. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So what the Scripture is telling us, what Peter is telling us, is that the promises of God are part of the very thing that anchor us to Him. So how do we learn the promises of God? By studying the Word. So as you study the Word, and the Word is being pressed on your heart, did you notice this, that the more you know the Word, and the more you grow in the Word, the more you want the Word? You ever notice that in your life? It's a bad sign when Christians have no desire to read the Bible whatsoever. That's a bad sign. But if you're hungry for the Word, that's a good sign. Because the promises of God are contained in the Word of God, and the promises of God are then pressed to our hearts by the Word of God as we take it in. And then they begin to put on flesh. They begin to fashion themselves into the living, breathing Christians that are taking them in, reading on. For this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and virtue knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as you actively study the Word, you begin to take it to heart, and you begin to put it to work in your life, and you begin to say, Lord, help me put this, help me put this on. Help me look like Jesus in this way. You've been pressing me on this thing that I'm struggling with. You've been pressing me on this sin. You've been pressing me on, on my mouth and how I speak things I shouldn't speak. You've been talking to me about my profane mouth and my cursing, and I want to stop it. And so you start taking in Scripture that talks about how let no unclean thing come out of your mouth and speak words that are edifying instead of words that are distracting and words that tear people down. Speak the truth in love and, and, and don't practice coarse jesting. Right? All these things are scriptural admonitions. He, um, Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to, to look them up later. But as you're doing this, all of a sudden you begin to notice that there's this prompting inside of you to obey what God has been telling you. And then... The work begins. Now, I'm not talking about being saved by your works, but I'm talking about the work of actually adding diligence to obedience. It means that you have to engage your brain and engage your mind and engage your life 
to do what God tells you to do so that you might grow in grace. There is an active participation that is required. God does not passively produce holy people. Okay? He doesn't passively produce righteousness in His children. He calls us to obey, to engage. And this word here, which is given diligence, the Greek for it is spude. And it means just earnestly, passionately, with everything that's in you, driving after it, hungering for it, so that nothing else will ever satisfy you. It's a really strong word. It's a really neat word. And it means that everything you are is, has some urgency to it. I really want this more than anything. Add some diligence to this. Set yourself to obey the Word of God. Set yourself to do what God tells you to do. And then notice what it ultimately produces in your life. I could preach for days and days on this passage in Peter, and I'm not going to. But, well, not today anyway. Maybe in a few years when we're done with Hebrews. Pay attention to what he says. We started off saying you can check your faith and the authenticity of your faith by the fruitfulness of your life. Right? What did verse 8 tell us? If these are in you and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're doing the diligence to add these things to you and applying yourself to obeying the Word of God and saying, Lord, make this real in me, what you're going to find is that the fruit that you want becomes more evident every single day. Because God never fails to keep His promise. Amen. Okay? Engage yourself in it. Do the work. Engage with it so that you might grow in grace. And then, engage in the practice of checking yourself carefully against the Scripture. Alright? Reading on in Peter. Starting at verse 9. He says this, For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little short scenario to kind of tie some of this together. We said God chastens those that are his own. Sometimes the chastening sounds like this. My children don't act that way. Right? Now what do you hear when I say that to you? Do you hear questioning, doubting? Do I belong to God? Right? A lot of us, if we grew up in Baptist churches, when we were saved, somebody told us, now you're saved, don't ever question it. It's a bad idea. Because the scripture here clearly tells us that we're to make sure of our calling and election. We're to absolutely engage in the practice of checking our own soul. Of making sure that we belong to Christ. So sometimes God's going to go, hey, my children don't act that way. And you're going to process that like this. Lord, am I yours? I'm sorry. Because how do you deal with it when you mess up? The same way you dealt with it when you got saved. You repent. Right? 1 John 1 tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it goes on to say 
that if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar and the truth is not in us. Right? What's he telling us? He's telling us, look, you're going to fail. You're going to mess this up. And sometimes the the response of God, the the chastening of the Lord, is going to make you feel very uncomfortable. But if you're His, He's going to carry you through that. But part of the process that He uses to carry you through that is to have you go back and check your life and look at the things that are broken, look at the things that are wrong, and then engage in the action of repentance. Because repentance is something that belongs in the life of a follower of Christ every single day. If you belong to Christ, you are a person who is always in repentance. Always. You don't ever stand back and go, hey, look, I got this mastered. I don't need to repent. I'm perfect. I'm sinless. I'm a Christian. Don't look at me. That's absolutely a lie. Right? If you belong to Christ, the closer you get to Him, the more you see your own stains. Right? I put on this vest this morning in the dark and I got to church and my wife says, there's a spot on your vest. And she's right. Now you're not going to be able to see anything else while I'm still preaching. You're going to see that spot on my vest. But I pointed out for this reason. How did she see it and I didn't? The presence of light. Well, and she's a woman. But the presence of light, (laughs) right? The closer you get to God, the more light there is shining in your life and the more you see the little spots, the plainer they become. Don't take that like, God's always beating up on me. He hates me. No. He's showing you what He's calling you to be and He's allowing you the opportunity to repent because here's the thing. When you repent, it gives glory to Christ. When you repent, the Son is made much of. Because it's His death that gives you access to repentance. It's His death that gives you the opportunity to repent. It's His death that purchased you. And it's His death that sanctifies you. When you actively participate in the work of repentance, you give honor and glory to the risen Christ. So beloved, don't, don't, I beg you, do not buy into this Christianese lie which says, you got to look good all the time. You never admit your failings. Make sure that everything's always perfect on the outside because we don't want people to talk bad about us. Because you know what? They're not buying it anyway. And if that's your attitude, I promise you they're talking bad about you. I promise you. But if you own your stuff and you say, you know what? I messed up. I'm sorry. You own it. You repent. You deal with it. You move on. And in that moment, what you demonstrate to a watching world is the authenticity of what we've been telling them all along. Because if we're telling them, God will forgive your sins if you simply ask for mercy in Christ. They have to believe that. That's the issue of faith. God has to give them the faith to believe that. But don't miss this. How are you expecting them to believe what you're showing them you don't? Okay, If you refuse to acknowledge your need for a Savior, refuse to acknowledge your need for repentance as an ongoing reality in your life, what you're telling them is that Jesus is not true. John says, if you say that you have no sin, you make God a liar. And the truth is not in you. Beloved, live in repentance. 
And by doing this, by living always in repentance, you guarantee that you will know that the faith that is in you is real. And that the working of the Spirit that is being done through you and to you and in you and on you is authentically the Spirit of God. And you can take confidence in the fact that you will never fall away because God doesn't lose anything that's His. But if you live your life like, I'm going to do this on my own and I'm going to believe in Jesus as long as it's convenient and I'm going to stand back as far as I can get from Him and I'm going to just try to walk this way and and I'm going to call it the work of the Spirit because I can look at this and say, this is good. Eventually, you're going to run out of gas on that path. And you're going to walk away. And you're going to prove to God and to yourself that you were never His to begin with. If that's true of you, he already knows that you're not his because that's his business. But you'll make it plain to a watching world. And you're just proving the fact that everything you said was a lie. Beloved, I beg you, please, live in repentance. Stay close to the Christ. Draw near to him. He'll draw near to you. And he will cleanse you of all of your unrighteousness bit by bit, piece by piece, ouch by ouch, pain by pain. It all happens, but it's all good. And there is no part of that process which will not reach its final conclusion. Because the Lord knows those who are His, and He will save them to the uttermost. Let's pray. Father, I ask that You give to us grace in this day. Teach us what it looks like to put on Christ so that we might live it out to a dying world. I pray, God, that you would revive your people and that you would cause us to walk in grace and truth. And that you would teach us that over all of our days, your hand is at work displaying Christ. Help us do everything that we can to make that true. Give us the joy of participating with you in your work that Christ might be honored. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Go take your hymnals now, please, and turn to him.